Thank you, Nell. Let's open our Bibles. Mine is open to Romans 2. And if you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you pass those to the center aisle, we would gladly receive them and pray with you uh, this week. Uh, This has been a week of travel in my life. Uh, Monday through Wednesday, I was in Nashville at the Southern Baptist Convention, which was eventful. Maybe you've read some of it in the paper. Don't believe three-fourths of it, but maybe you've read a little bit about that. And I'm reminded again that as Southern Baptists, we're not a top-down, but a bottom-up organization, 47,000 churches cooperating together to obey the Great Commission. And we'll have more to say about the Southern Baptist Convention, but certainly some strategic contacts and conversations for ministry and also uh, things learned and we'll be talking about those in the week to come weeks to come and then um, Thursday through uh, Saturday I was in Dallas Uh, Gwen and I were happy to accompany Nathan to the National Bible Drill which he qualified for and we got to Dallas and we had the fellowship on Thursday night uh, in preparation for the competition on Friday, and Friday morning, Nathan wakes up with a stomach virus. <laughs> oh, wow, was that tough. And so, you know, he's able to handled it really well, and uh, we're proud of him, but was not able to compete. And all of us who have lived in this world for very long know how that can take you out for 28 to four, or 24 to 48 hours. We appreciate your prayers in that regard. And while I have not had those symptoms and uh, a measure of caution, I've been uh, incognito this morning. <laughs> and so Jared will be standing here for the responding in faith and uh, praying over the mission team. And if I slip out the back door or side door, it's not uh, I'm trying to escape anything, uh, but want to be um, uh, sensitive. And, you know, just coming through the pandemic, this, there's, there's a heightened sense of, of wanting to be considerate to one another. But I was well enough to preach, and I really would have to be almost dead to give that up. So here we are in Romans chapter 2. God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And I love in the, in the, in the ordinary uh, preaching of God's Word, systematically through a Bible book, how there will be... Romans, the book of Romans, forces us to think about the life we're now living and how we will answer for it on that day of judgment that God has appointed. One of the numbing effects of, of sin is really to ignore what is ultimate and to focus on what is temporary or trivial. The Bible repeatedly points us to eternal issues which makes the Word of God a lifeline for us as we seek to approve what is excellent to Him. One day, life as we know it will be over. How do we know that? By experience. We see it with loved ones and friends who age and who die. And if we'll be honest with ourselves, we'll find on occasions we'll look in the mirror and we'll see the effects of age in our face. We know that that is inevitable, and yet we seem fixed on the horizontal demands of life, don't we? To the neglect of our soul. Jesus told a parable about a rich man who was driven by the things of this world. And the parable was given to address someone in the crowd who who felt gypped, ripped off in an inheritance squabble. And Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. 
Jesus went on to tell the story of a rich man who expanded his business and invested in his earthly status. I will build barns and bigger barns. And there's nothing wrong with faith-driven desires. But that was not what his desire was. His desire was to be rich, to make a name for himself. And to that, the parable concludes with these sobering words. But God said to him, fool. you And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What's the answer to that? Maybe to those that you leave it to? Maybe to, maybe to an inheritance fight? which started this conversation or parable. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Romans is a book that helps us and challenges us to be rich toward God. When all is said and done about your life and mine, what is most important is what is done for Jesus Christ. In Him, we're not ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. In Christ, we find refuge in the wrath to come. In Him, we find propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In Jesus Christ, we find the light that keeps us from the muck and mire of sin's degenerating power. The Bible teaches that God knows and will judge the secrets of men's hearts, men and women, on that day of judgment. Jesus will be the final judge, and that seems to be appropriate, doesn't it? In light of what Christ has accomplished for us, the one sent forth as the world's only Savior, that if we reject His love, if we reject His atonement, if we reject His forgiveness, that we should be accountable to Him. The Bible says that Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And the most important thing on that day will be, is the judge your Savior or not? So let's look at this text. I want to divide it into five sections this morning. The first being kind of a review, but God's judgment is revealed and is coming. God's judgment is revealed and is to come. Our trip through Romans 1 was a contrast of an opening of good news, a word of hope. Paul said after his introduction, I come to proclaim the good news to you that's anchored in history. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. That that Jesus Christ really did come from the line of David. He really did walk on this earth. He really died on the cross and he really rose from the dead. And because of that, there's good news because this is God's means to bring forgiveness to us. And so... He continues on in chapter 1, and you almost, when you come to the end of chapter 1, want to hold up a shield. It's so powerful. If you and I do not see the human race as fallen and degenerating and spiraling downward apart from God's grace, apart from turning to God through the gospel, then the whole prospect of a crucified and risen Savior will be boring to you. Even worse, will be an offense to you. Because at the heart of the gospel is coming to terms with your sin, which nobody wants to talk about. What you will not find in the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message that strokes your ego. The claims of Christ do not extol your virtues, your goodness, or tell you how wonderful you are. 
The message of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. And the good news of Christ is not a self-help program to add to the many other strategies that you may look to to guide your life. And we hear this believe in yourselfism all all over the place, being sequestered in a hotel in Dallas this week. Um, I watched more TV in the last 24 hours or 48 hours than I have in probably six months. And wow, what a wake-up call to the agenda shifts across our cultural plane. And you hear this bravado, this believe in yourself. When athletes are interviewed, you got to believe in yourself. When successful people are interviewed or or speaking, they're they're talking about... uh, uh, their goodness and their glory and their skills and their excellence above all, all people. Now, we wouldn't minimize the importance of a good attitude, but what drives everything we do as a Christian is understanding who we are in Jesus Christ and that apart from Him, we're bankrupt. So, this wrath of God is revealed. How is it revealed? Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is revealed, and one of the signs of the wrath of God revealed is that God lets you do what you want to do. It's revealed when he gives a people over to their rebellion. And this is often manifested in a sexual revolution. And I think the reason that Paul uses sexual sins as an example of a downward spiral is because that is what seems to be most evident. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says that sexual sin carries with it a deeper impact on the soul of a person. That's why he would say flee immorality. Is it the unpardonable sin? Of course not. Who would be in this room? But in Romans 1, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26 of chapter 1, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. In other words, a rejection of God's standards over and over and over again. You have a conscience that doesn't function anymore. And then he closes out the chapter with a whole cluster of sins that show that we're in trouble. God's wrath is revealed. But the Bible, and in Romans in particular, also speaks that God's wrath is to come. There's a judgment to come. Many commentators believe that Paul is describing in Romans 1... In verses 18 through 32, the Gentile world, which I tend to lean toward because of how Paul guides the discussion in chapter 2 to include the Jew and to once again use the phrase to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In Romans 2, Paul in effect is saying to his fellow Jew, not so fast, you who boast in having the law. You have no right to judge while you do the same things. The Jews had the law. They saw themselves as a privileged people. We're not like those filthy Gentiles given over to all this garbage that we read of in chapter 1. That's not it. We got the law. We have the oracles of God. We have the covenants. 
But he says in chapter 2, verse 3, Do you suppose, old man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do, do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You will not escape the judgment of God. John Stott once said, Truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. And love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. The balance is tricky, but we have no option but to attempt it. We're not to be critically judgmental. Jesus taught us that in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that you be not judged, but that's probably the most misunderstood Bible, in the, uh, Bible verse in the New Testament. Because what that communicates is basically, you're not allowed to make any judgment calls at all. But I would say to us, it's impossible to live for Jesus Christ in this world and not make judgment calls. The issue is, am I, am I speaking a word of judgment while at the same time doing the same thing? That's what he's condemning. And that's what the Jews were doing. Often, the phrase, who are you to judge, comes up. And we're finding that more and more in this culture is any type of judgment call, any type of determination of what is right or wrong is immediately ruled out of order. Who are you to judge? One small group leader was explaining in a Bible study that those who slept together before marriage were displeasing to God and that such behavior was called fornication and clearly out of bounds and clearly a sin. Who are you to judge? Snapped one of the attendants of the, participants in the Bible study. And by the way, who, of us is, who among us is perfect? The, the student continued. We have no right to sit in judgment of someone else's personal morality. Really? Is that true? It's time for the discerning Christian to say, it is true all of us have sinned to come short of the glory of God. But we must agree on what God has said about these things, not what we think is personally right or wrong. The Bible is pledged to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And clearly it calls this sinful behavior, I'm going to side, I'm going to side on the scripture. Not personal opinions, which vary. I want us to have etched in our minds the danger of this because what will happen in your Christian life is, is the temptation increasingly to remain silent about things. This is a call for us to live and pursue a holy life. And this is a call for us to, um, to walk humbly before our God and to speak the truth in love. We're to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ, to test the spirits to see if they are true, and we're to submit to the authority of the word in every area of our life. And yet we hear this type of statement every day. Who are you to say that God can't approve a loving homosexual relationship and even marriage? Who are you to say that? Who are you to say that the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong? Who are you to say when people collapse that they're claiming to be slain in the Spirit? Who are you to say they're not slain in the Spirit by the Spirit of God? Who are you to say that when a statue of the Virgin Mary weeps, we should not think that she's not trying to get us a message? Who are you to say that I don't have a biblical grounds for divorce? I mean, who do you think you are? 
So what I'm wanting to say, and for us to see the application here, is to live the Christian life, we're called to make judgments, assessments, to show discernment based upon what God's Word has said to us. And when that leads to a a second important component of of being a, a Christian who's on mission with God, and that is that we're daily repenting of our sins, that we're daily walking humbly before our God. And to say to our pagan friends, please show me if there's some inconsistency in my life. But my hope is in what Jesus Christ has done for me. So Paul's point here again is not that judgments and discernment shouldn't be given. We must do that if we would live for Jesus. Paul's point is to condemn those who judge like the Jews condemning the Gentiles while doing the same thing themselves. I read about a engaged couple who went to their pastor because the man was unwilling to forgive his girlfriend, his fiancée, who had confessed to a rather storied past before her conversion. Despite the engagement, this groom-to-be did not think he could marry someone who was not pure. He wanted someone who was pure without other memories. So the pastor asked about his past, whether he was sexually pure. The answer was no. His track record was just as storied as his fiancée's. And when asked about the double standard, he admitted that it wasn't consistent. But facts are facts, and he simply could not forgive her. And the loving pastor pointed out that his problem was that he would not allow his past sin to humble him. Yes, he had sinned, but his sin was different. His plank had grown so large that he couldn't see it. The pastor concluded, you will never understand the heart of a Pharisee unless you realize that he sees the plank in his eye as belonging to others. You know, one of the reasons Jesus calls us to live a humble life submitted to him is so that we might get rid of the logs so we can help other people with the specks. One of the most moving invitations of the gospel For sinners in this world, as in chapter 2, verse 4, one of the tender reminders of the God who's on the throne, yes, he's a God of wrath, but there's more to him than that. Do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you where? To repentance, to turn to him, to believe on him, and to follow him all of your days. Yes, the wrath of God is revealed, we see it every day, but the wrath of God is to come, And what's our assurance as we approach that day? And that's the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, let's break some new ground. Secondly, I'd like to mention the impartiality of God's judgment. Look at that in the text. Verse 11 says, For God shows no partiality between Jew and Gentile, is what he's talking about. Over the the span of human history, over the span of the human race, God shows no impartiality. And Paul's point is that there is no impartiality between Jews and Greeks. In verse 12, for all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What's that tongue twister all about? Well, often he's talking about those with the law. Those would, that would be the Jews. The, the law was given to the Jews. And what about those who don't have the law, namely the Gentiles, that they will perish without the law? So whether you're a Jew or Gentile, 
Whether you have the law or don't have the law, it's not going to benefit you at the judgment. Often one of the objections against Christianity is, how could God condemn people who've never heard? How how can God do that and be just? And I understand the anguish behind the question, but I also understand the argument of Romans 1. And there we stand without flinching, not saying that it's an easy conversation, but I think it's the answer to the question. Romans 1 refutes that is unjust and identifies that God's judgments are right and that all humanity is accountable to the revelation that's been given to them. And the revelation that has been given to him, namely that extols God's invisible attributes and his eternal power has been rejected and suppressed and in turn has has brought about an idolatry where we worship the things we create rather than the living God and that God is not unjust in judging that. Often what follows is the fictitious story or scenario of some innocent person in a distant land, some innocent man in Africa who's never heard the gospel Um, The problem with that is that guy doesn't exist. There are guilty people all all over Africa and Asia and Europe and North America and South America. And if somebody could get a pass on God's judgment by ignorance alone, why in the world would we ever want to send a missionary to them? I mean, why even bother with a a collegiate ministry if... um, If they could get a pass on, well, if you don't know, then you're okay. That is not the message of the Bible. That is not the message of Romans 1. It's a desperate situation. And so what should fuel us in love is to take that good news to the ends of the earth, which we as a congregation are committed to do. That's the whole point of Psalm 67, that God has blessed us so that the ways of of the Lord would be known on the earth. It is why we are a great commissioned people and the times are desperate to make Jesus Christ known. I would pray even this week that we would see as we depart to serve that we would take the name of Jesus with with us and make him known in the course of everyday life. It's what this world needs to hear and it's what we're called to proclaim. Look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. The Jews were hearers. That didn't make him right before the Lord. But the doers of the law who will be justified. When someone perishes who never heard the law of Moses, it is not because they never heard the law. Not hearing the law of Moses is not what condemns. The text says that the hearing, hearing the law will not bring salvation But it's doing the law. Having access to the law will not give benefit at the final judgment. The issue is not whether you have the law or don't have it or have much of it or little of it. The issue is not how many Bibles you own, how many church services you own or you attend. The ultimate issue will be how did you live? Are you the doers of of, of this word? Now, we know that no one can be justified by doing the works of the law. So how does one become a doer of the law? And I think that points us right back to the gospel to read into it. It points us back to the gospel that through the new covenant of Jesus Christ, God's word is written where? 
on our hearts. And we begin to show the obedience of faith which our life comes, uh, comes into conformity with the demands of God's truth. All human beings have, have the moral law of God stamped on their hearts. We're accountable for the revelation that we have. But it's a call to be a doer. When the Gentiles, verse 14, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. How, is that, how does that come about? I would, I would say that's through the new birth. And it speaks about the conscience here. While their conscience also bears witness, I want to recover with you an important doctrine, and that is that every human being has a conscience. Whether you're redeemed or not, God has given every human being a conscience and has pressed upon that conscience a natural law. That's why you can go to remote civilizations uh, or, or different cultures and there's a sense, for the most part, of what is right and what is wrong. That is an argument for the existence of God. But this natural law, this moral law, pressed on the hearts and upon our conscience. And I would just urge us as Christians gathering in this room, for those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, God's put a conscience within you. It's a, it's a warning system. May your conscience be informed by the word of God. May it bring to attention things that, that will lead you to life and peace. You cannot continue to violate your conscience and expect to live in victory for the Lord. You just, we can't. And so, that's why our conscience must be informed by the Word of God to live it out. And he mentions here, while their consciences also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Notice with me thirdly. The perfection of God's judgment. The impartiality of it, whether you're Jew or Gentile, we all can expect a judgment day. The issue on that day is who you know and how you've lived because you will be judged according to your works, which we'll get to in just a moment. But I want to use the remainder, remainder uh, sections here, the remaining sections from verse 16, which I want to make an application to every man here, every everyone here, but particularly on this Father's Day, verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Wow, what a statement. What a statement. Would you allow this to inform your faith and your view of the future? That there's a day coming when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of your heart. By whom? Jesus Christ. Jesus said as much in John 5, verses 22 through 30. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Wow. Paul, in preaching in Athens, said, The times of ignorance are over. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. Who is that man? The infinite God-man, Jesus Christ the righteous. And this is the one who has come and has been risen, raised from the dead. 
So this perfection of judgment, it will be seen in this way. I hope you're following along in the insert. I would note this, which didn't, I think, make the cut. But this perfection of judgment would be seen in this way. Every mouth will be stopped. No more catchy comebacks. No more snide and cynical retorts. No polished spins. Romans 3.19 says, So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. Every mouth will be stopped. And this would be, I think, a strong word for one who may have a skill and seeming to slide through the judgments of this world. Talking your way out of being held accountable for your decisions and behavior. That's not going to serve you well on the judgment. Secondly, the entire universe will declare, will declare this. At the final judgment, I, I believe Scripture affirms this, that the entire universe will declare, ready? Well, of course. <laughs> of course. Why would you think that would be the collective statement? Well, I, I fixed that on Philippians 2 primarily, which says that God's highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that he is Lord. And then thirdly, on that day, will you be found in him? Will you be found in Christ? Every other offer is a pseudo-savior, a false salvation. Let's move fourthly and quickly. The precision of God's judgment. The precision of God's judgment. On that day when according to my gospel, so the gospel is good news, and it comes out of understanding the bad news, that God judges the secrets of men's hearts so the basis of God's judgment will be our works. Again, we're not saved by them, but they testify of a redeemed life. Based upon one's rejection of revelation received, according to deeds done, without partiality, and in response to the gospel, John Piper noted, the judgment of, on Jew and Gentile is going to be according to their deeds, not according to their ethnic or religious advantages. Jews and Gentiles will receive or not receive eternal life on this basis. Do their deeds corroborate, sustain their faith? Isn't that what we need to ask every time we gather? Is my life bearing witness to the saving relationship I have with Jesus Christ. I think as I look at God's precision, I'm reminded once again that the God of heaven cannot be fooled by any strategy of man. He can't be fooled. And that no human effort can meet God's standard. It is precise and exact and since we fall so miserably short of it, it only 
highlights our need for a perfect redeemer, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, let me close with this and what I believe is the application for this Father's Day. The foolish efforts of living a secret life. If God is going to judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, wouldn't it just beg the statement that this is a foolish errand for me to try to live a secret life? Because I have a God who sees me in my private moments and knows my thoughts and intents from afar, knows my words even before I speak them, according to Psalm 139. I believe this text is a good Father's Day message because one of the most crippling and besetting sins that men face is a compartmentalized life. And by that I mean... In one world, I might serve in the church, I might be a Bible teacher, I might serve with the youth, be an elder, a deacon, a praise team member, an Awana worker, a pastoral staff member. And in another world, I might commit adultery and massage and addiction or serve for personal aggrandizement and recognition. And I don't know which is really me. And when one lives a compartmentalized life, there are lots of secrets. There are integrity issues. Man, we know what they are, don't we? No, I'm not talking to somebody else out there. I'm talking to us here in this room. This is a text for us this Lord's Day. That God will judge the secrets of your life, of your heart, by Jesus Christ on that day. And it should be a wake-up call to every man who hears this, this message. We're prone to self-deceiving, self-justifying. Most people believe that they're above average. That's statistically impossible. I'm above average. Compared to who? <laughs> We're experts at blame-shifting, self-protection, some will say, well, that, you know, that's just, that's part of evolution. And that's the survival of the fittest. No, we would hold up the biblical worldview. That's the result of the fall. That's the result of sin entering the world. We can fool others, can't we? But we can never fool God. Well, you don't understand. My parents did, I'm reminded of that line from a movie I watched in my youth where a young man said, pulling up his sleeve, showing a scar on his arm, this is what happens when you spill pain in the garage at my house. Which leads to an aside that Father's Day may not be a good memory for you. And to that we, we understand. But as much as it depends upon you to live a bitter free life, to show the love of Christ, to take initiative where none is, is given, you take that for the glory of Christ. Because one day we're going to give an account of our life. And the issue will be, what did I do as a born-again, blood-bought believer in Christ? Did I live for Him? No secrets. 
1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. But secrecy is one of the greatest temptations in the world today. It's a war within, and every man must battle it. And maybe as we come to the end of this message, your heart is saying, I don't want to live a compartmentalized life. I want to live a life of integrity before God and before others. Edward Sanford Martin captures the battle powerfully in his poem, My Name is Legion. Within my earthly temple, there's a crowd. There's one of us who's humble and one of us who's proud. There's one that's brokenhearted for his sins and one who unrepentant sits and grins. There's one who loves his neighbor as himself and one who cares for naught but fame and wealth. From much corroding care I would be free if once I could determine which is me. I pray that we would see our identity in Jesus Christ and we would admit one to another our sins and walk in his grace together. How important that is. One of the painful realities of overcoming sin is how stubbornly they hang on. Mark Twain once said, of course I'm not addicted to smoking. I've quit a thousand times. And you may have an issue in your life that besets you and plagues you. There's a Redeemer who is powerful still. And our thousands of failures calls us to persevere, to confess our sins, to quit living secrets, to be men of integrity. David, writing out of the backwash of his failure with Bathsheba and Uriah and that whole sordid mess. David struggled greatly with fatherhood. I would say he was a poor father. He was checked out when he should have been checked in. He committed great mistakes, but nevertheless was said to be a man after God's own heart, which ought to give us great encouragement that God preserved his story for us so we don't stand in judgment of David. We're grateful for this life-giving hope that God gives to those who fall short of his glory. And David said in Psalm 32 about living secrets, he said, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then it says salah, which means take a break. Think about that. How many secrets are in this room? You might say, well, man, if I, if I come clean on these things, it's going to cause me a lot of problems. It doesn't compare to the problems that await for those that appear before God. Right? Often our breaches of integrity are fueled by fear, aren't they? Afraid for your children, afraid to live a useless, empty life, afraid of being found out, afraid about decisions you face, afraid of the future, afraid of your enemies, afraid of getting old, afraid of failure, afraid of dying, 
Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's that? It's not the devil, I'll tell you that. He doesn't have that kind of power. That's the power of one, the living God. And so I call us men to long obedience in the same direction, to run the race. Early in John's gospel, I'm going to close, I promise. I was just feeling a need to get it all out. Early in John's gospel, there's an exchange between Jesus and Nathaniel. Nathaniel uh, said to Philip, who announced the coming of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. That's a great compliment coming from Jesus. That's a great goal for every man of God. It's not that Nathanael was sinless. We know better than that. That's not the point. He was a man with no deceit. He was seeking the glory of God, which is God's call for us. David said in another psalm, Psalm 139, search me and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you bow with me in prayer? Brother Jared will come here to the front in our closing moments of this service. I don't know how this message has um, spoken to the needs of your life, but what a call for us to come clean, to seek the Lord. We call this time responding in faith because we believe every time the word is opened, that's the call. So whether um, a few come or none come, one comes or no come, this is about doing business with God rather than simply taking in a sermon or allowing the word to speak to us and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And may God give freedom for that right now. Lord Jesus Christ, we call upon you on this Lord's Day, June 20th, 2021. We pray that you would do your appointed work in us, knowing that one day we will stand before you. And may we stand fully clothed in your righteousness by faith in you alone. For things that need to be taken care of right now, I pray that you would bring us all into conformity to Christ, that we would be obedient, and we would say, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. In Christ's name, amen.